Hello, and welcome to the Sovereign Collective Podcast, where we bring you real raw truths for your self-empowerment. I'm your host, Sasha Calavota, and I believe that you can stand on your own two feet, but that you don't have to do it alone. I love learning from people who continually strive to raise the bar, to go against mainstream thinking, and who dare to question the general consensus. People are risking ridicule or even risk the loss of their professional status as they bravely question the common narratives and challenge the rest of us to expand our minds and to reconsider what we think we already know. Join me in learning how to take control of your health and your mind so that you can have the energy to think more clearly and the confidence to step up and take responsibility for all aspects of your life. We promise to never censor here because I believe you are strong enough to hear the real raw truth to make up your own mind. If you like what you find here at the Sovereign Collective Podcast, then please share with your friends and family. And please also consider making a small donation on my Patreon page so that I can continue to bring you amazing content so that we can all create a better future. I so appreciate you. Thank you for tuning in. And now, on to the show. Hi, all. This is Sasha here with a quick little extra intro for the interview that you're about to listen to with Daniel Vitalis. This is an interview that I recorded some years ago when I created a program called Your Conscious Pregnancy and Parenting Guide, a program that I just re-released for a fraction of its original cost just a couple of days ago. So this interview I recorded with Daniel on how to end the cycle of sickness in our children, which I feel is very, very important information, which is why I am releasing the first part of this interview. There's a ton of information in here that you can apply, tips to think about, things to consider about how you're raising your children. So I hope you enjoy this interview. I loved it back then and it's as relevant now as it was when I originally recorded the material. If you want to find out more, go to sovereigncollective.org forward slash get the guide, sovereigncollective.org forward slash get the guide. Enjoy. Thanks for watching. with another interview for your Conscious Pregnancy and Parenting Guide. And today I am here with Daniel Vitalis, forager extraordinaire, and a man on a mission to uh, teach us, I think, how to rewild our lives and rewild the planet as a result. And I've just had the pleasure of listening to Daniel for the past three days, listening to his vast knowledge, and very vast, and I think probably just the tip of the iceberg, I'm sure, of what he knows. But just his knowledge about how we can reclaim our health and get it back to the level that it once was at and that is when we were when it was normal to be healthy and thriving and not diseased and, and falling apart and degenerating um, he spent a lot of time from what I can tell uh, researching and learning and really fully experiencing all that he teaches so I feel really blessed to be able to be speaking personally with another passionate person who's truly making a profound impact in this world uh, Daniel's information is really powerful, but it's really practical. I went home and made sauerkraut immediately that night in like 10 minutes. It was that fast, pretty much. Um, so it's really powerful and it's empowering and it, it gives us the, 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 the understanding that we can be powerful in this very quickly changing world. Um, I have been following Daniel for some time now. I've been recommending his information and his websites to clients, to friends for quite some time. So if you don't know Daniel, I think it's about time that you do. And you can check him out at danielvitalis.com. And you can also go to surthrival.com. And we'll have those, those websites up on the, on the course site for you. 
um, where at thrival.com you can learn about his products and really get in touch with some products that will help you truly thrive in, in your world. Also, you can go to YouTube and watch a whole bunch of interviews, interesting, fun, informative interviews with, with Dan and learn heaps of information on a bunch of topics. So thank you, Daniel, for being here today. Really appreciate it. It was a lovely introduction. Oh, well, thank you. So, thank you. <laughs> so okay, let's get started. Let's just talk about, I know you've been on quite the journey. You've been on a journey of veganism, raw foodism, vegetarianism, and you're absolutely not that now. So mm. tell us a little bit about your journey to where you got today. And Well, when I was uh, about 15 years old, I got exposed to some ideas that maybe nutrition could actually affect who we are. Um, that's so obvious to me now that to say that, like that I discovered that idea for myself seems almost like really immature and silly, but now like looking at the world at large, I see that for a lot of people, the idea that you could change yourself, fundamentally change yourself with food is a completely foreign idea to people. They are living in such a way out in the, in, I guess in the masses as if you could just eat genetically modified food and completely refined foods and chemically laden foods with impunity and it wouldn't have an effect on who you are. And now what I understand is it's not really that I changed myself with food, that I actually restored myself with food. Mm. And that who I've become is actually who I was. Mm. But that that had been dampened down and actually degenerating away uh, from the lifestyle that unfortunately was just, um, I guess, was the norm. I grew up in that 80s and the 90s in the United States and it was just... You know, it was white bread, it was Wonder Bread, and it was Twinkies, and it was Pop-Tarts, and that was my reality. So um, that led me to get into the ideas of vegetarianism and the ideas of Whole Foods, and that led me into the idea... That was when Whole Foods was not a store, but a concept. <laughs> um, that led me, of course, into the thing you mentioned, which was veganism and, and raw foodism, and, and I approached all of that stuff with a lot of fervor. And I've really come full circle today, because my, my interest in my study for the last couple of years has been in... And I think the question that was motivating all this, let me say this first, was what's the natural diet for human beings in the same way that we could find the natural diet of chimpanzees or, or whales or, or walruses and we could, we could understand that if we were to feed that animal its natural diet, it would thrive better than on a diet that it wasn't developed for over its, mm -hmm. the span of its evolution. I was curious what was the diet of our species and I chased that down and chased that down until I finally realized that I could look to the indigenous people around the world to see what they had eaten all through time that it allowed them, and I think it brings us full circle to, to the meaning of this interview, what, what they were doing was feeding themselves not just to develop themselves but to develop generation after generation mm -hmm. of healthy children. And so we can actually look to the indigenous people to not only find out what our natural diet is, but what natural diet will actually keep a people regenerating flawlessly, nearly mm -hmm. flawlessly. I mean without cavities, I mean without diabetes, I mean without cancer, without heart disease. These diseases don't exist amongst the indigenous people. So now what I'm really interested in is how do I model not just my diet, but my entire lifestyle after the lifestyle and diet of the indigenous people from all around the world and how do I share that with other people so that people can approximate that mm -hmm. I say that because we don't actually have a world where we, you know we can go backward to you know sort of who we used to be that's not going to happen so what we can do I think is just like a chimp in a zoo can have a habitat that resembles its natural habitat and a diet that resembles its natural diet even though it's living in a kind of captivity, whilst we live in this sort of 
I think, really social captivity in a lot of ways, we can at least approximate our natural habitat, our natural food, and that can get us back on course so we can regenerate properly, effectively, um, rather than continue to degenerate ourselves into a point of such a disease state that really, right now, I think, I think it's a pivotal moment. We're on the, right on the precipice. The question is, will humanity actually be able to continue living on the planet? A lot of people think that sounds crazy, but take a look at the birth rates, take a look at the cancer rates, take a look at the heart disease rates that the media loves to sort of placate us and keep this information sort of on the sidelines of um, what they give us. But I think it's getting obvious now. This is the generation that has to make some serious choices about how we live, how we eat, how we reproduce, uh, so that we can continue on to our bright future. Right, and I think that's so key because, you know, what, what you say is that a lot of what we're doing now isn't going to show up the, until the next generation or the generation mm -hmm. after that, and we're already seeing problems in this generation yeah. with so many key things. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean for the next generation? That's kind of scary. So, okay, so how is your knowledge pertinent to families and, and raising truly healthy children? What have you learned around that? What do you, how does that come into play? What I've learned is that, again, if we were to go to indigenous people and, and take a look at how they rear their families... And I think if we could do it in a non-judgmental way where we don't have to project onto uh, them how we define family units, how we define marriages, how we define mm -hmm. what a family we think should look like, but instead really look at like how does a, a man and a woman come together, reproduce and rear a healthy child, if we could keep just the framework of family mm -hmm. so that we don't project cultural biases, what we would see is that so much of how people live on the planet indigenously or pre-industrially might be a more comfortable word for some people. If you said, hey, why do you do this? Why do you eat this? Why do you pursue this for our children, for healthy children? Mm. What I see is going on now, I mean, there's a lot of politics around the family that I don't think is really the scope of this interview, but just nutritionally. People today, families today, are having a difficult time bringing forth a child with a fully formed bone structure. You might be saying, well, what do you mean? I'm, I have all my bones. Well, how are the bones in your mouth? Do they fit in your mouth? Do they overlap each other? Do some stick to the sides? Do some poke through the back? Did you have room for your wisdom teeth? Mm -hmm. Now, this isn't to say, hey, you've got a problem. The thing is to say, hey, look, we almost all do. In fact, it's very difficult to find a human being whose palate can actually accommodate all their teeth anymore. This is not the way of nature. In fact, if we look at indigenous people and pre-industrial people, we see that they have fully formed dental arches. We see that they're, um, they have broad cheekbones as opposed to us today. Now, how does that impact a family? So you bring forth a child and the child's skull hasn't fully formed. And the teeth are just symptomatic of that. Well, what's that mean for then the brain case, as an example? How irritating might it be if your brain can't be accommodated by your brain case? Could this cause a sort of attention deficit? Could this create children who are sort of um, uncomfortable in their own skin? Mm -hmm. I mean, if the brain doesn't even fit in the head. And now where we're at is using psychopharmacology on our children, aren't we? So rather than address any of our underlying symptoms, and rather than address our children with food and with nutrition, we see that indigenous people would prepare a woman for a couple of years before her pregnancy, right? So, you know, you're, you're a young woman, you're ready to maybe think about having a child. Um, there's a diet that you'd go on to prepare you, to give you such rich nutrition that you can form this child's nervous system. Then after birth, 
there'd be a, another process of feeding to prepare your, to, to reestablish everything that was passed on to your child. These things are gone now. We're giving birth to children of such low nutritional diets, our diets, and then feeding them such low nutrition diets, the children are literally mad. They're literally gone mad, and so we use now psychopharmacology on so many children, then to dope them down, so they're very drugged up today, and this leads them into just, it's a downward spiral. As you know, age 13, kids are crushing their Ritalin pills and snorting them, right, in the, in the school bathroom. I mean, how far do we go with this? So what does it mean for families? It means you can end this cycle. your children in a way that can restore them back and you can get them off psychopharmacology. If you haven't had children yet, you have the opportunity to feed yourself in such a way that you could bring forth a child unlike a lot of the kids you maybe have ever seen. And um, for those of us who aren't interested in having children at this point or already have had children, we can restore our own bodies. The family unit coming apart and the thing that's happening with children, it's just symptomatic of how we're living. Mm -hmm. There's so many different areas we could look at and see hey, here's a symptom of the degeneration, here's one. Today we're focusing on the child issue, yeah. but that's just one, one leg of this like monster beast. So what, would, what are some examples of how a woman can nourish her body to well, prepare? I think really important is that your brain is made of fat. Your brain's made out of fat. I, when I first got into nutrition, it was the no-fat, low-fat era. And that was logical to me. It seemed logical. It almost seemed right. It seemed right enough that a lot of people embraced it. Mm -hmm. Turns out the further we go back, the more fat we see we actually consumed. Fat's actually a very, not just important nutrient, it's maybe our critical nutrient. Human beings consume a lot of fats in the form of, of course, saturated fats, which are very good for us and not what we were taught. Mm -hmm. But more interesting to me are this, this other breed of fats, this other species of fats. Those are the long chain polyunsaturated fats like DHA. And DHA is the dominant fat in your brain. Now your brain's about 70% fat, but it's dominated by one type of fat, DHA. DHA is this type of fat that even if we cool it, it doesn't harden up, unlike a lot of saturated fats. And that's the fat that fishes use in their body. Because if fish use saturated fat in their body, of course, when they got in the cold oceans, their bodies would just harden up. Like, okay, that makes sense. Right? Like, a, like the lard in a pan or like coconut oil, when it gets cool, it hardens. Well, that wouldn't be, that's the kind of fat that's on our bodies, right? right? It feels liquidy now, we're warm. Yeah. But if our bodies cooled down, if we were a corpse, this fat would harden up just like lard does in a frying pan when it cools, just like coconut oil does. Well, that wouldn't work for fish, would it? That makes no, no. sense. They need a unique type. That's why if you take fish oil, you put it in the freezer, it still won't harden. It, right? Mm -hmm. It's a polyunsaturated mm -hmm. fat. It's a type of omega-3 fat. Now that's what your brain uses and your whole nervous system uses. In order for you to create another brain and nervous system, a lot of that's required. However, it's so scarcely in anyone's diet today that it's actually just drawn off of the mother's brain and nervous system like a bank account. It just draws and draws and draws in order to form the baby. Now, if the mother's already very depleted from generations of depletion, in other words, her grandmother was maybe the last 
maybe when the grandmother was a child, her mom gave her cod liver oil before school. But by the time she grew up, it was Betty Crocker days. And she stopped <laughs> eating things that contained that, right? Yeah. And the animals, in the animal food she'd maybe been eating, things like, say, the eggs that she'd been raised on, were now corn-fed instead of actually maybe the, the, the chickens eating insects. So the DHA was not in there anymore because mm -hmm. it's not in corn. Mm -hmm. And so it was out of the food chain. So then she had your mother, maybe, and your mother uh, never got any of these fats except the ones she'd extracted off her mother's brain in formation. And then she has you, and then you. the process goes on until we get to a point where neither baby nor mother can fully form a nervous system fully form a nervous system and these things lead to almost like it's almost like as if we started peeling the rubber coating off electrical wires we'd start to have short circuits and we're starting to see that in people's nervous systems mm. nervous systems that don't fully function mm -hmm. so what can a mother do who's an expecting mother i think one of the most important things is making sure she gets these long chain fats into her body now these things aren't typically in plants and they usually are on thing in things like fish oils or krill oils um, that's the whole reason cod liver oil is like a folk medicine. Well, those kind of foods also, and you know, more obscure for people like us would be the idea of eating brain. But that's not obscure. My mom ate brain. I just found out yesterday. Brain and tongue. Well, tongue, tongue is amazing. Yeah. yeah, well, brain is composed of this fat. And it's, um, it's been part of our diet for a very long time. I mean, human beings aren't new to that. We've just recently stopped. So, of course, not that many generations ago, this would have been common. But now, uncommon. So, uh, for most people, I think the fish oils are a little bit more easy to uh, maybe move toward. And that's something that a mother can start to put into her body or a woman who's considering, or even just any woman approaching childbearing age. You know what we could even say? How about everybody could use it? Because everybody's got a brain made from this stuff. Finding a source of fish oils like that's really important. Making sure you're eating fully mineralized food. Making sure, I think, that um, as you get ready, you really listen to your body and let your body guide you through the whole food world, not the store, the food, uh, with its cravings as it prepares itself to do this process. So, um, but really critical, I think, what I see is that um, more than anything, it's, it's the type of animal food that comes either from the wild or from really good grass-reared uh, animals, or animals fed their natural diet, they contain these unique fats that uh, human beings, for 200,000 years, have consumed in order to bring forth healthy children. Right. We are, of course, the first couple generations not to do that, and the uh, repercussions are, are obvious, yeah. are obvious. So indigenous cultures around the world that you have studied, they all have these traditions? They all have these traditional say? foods that they would use. Right. Right. Again, imagine if you strip away television and you strip mm -hmm. away magazines, you strip away books, you take away um, houses, you take away cars, you take away proms and parties, and, and you take away electric lights. Suddenly, what's left is the tribal unit. And that tribal unit has a few things that it does. It forages and hunts, and it reproduces, mm -hmm. right? And it builds community, and it strengthens community. And if you do this for countless hundreds of generations, and you start a practice that starts to cause degeneration, it's going to be immediately obvious what caused that, and you would correct it. By the time the colonists encountered some of these tribal people, these tribal people had been living so many generations, they had dialed in specifically what brought forth healthy children, what brought forth healthy mothers, what re-nourished mothers so the mothers could then have healthy children again, 
Uh, this stuff was known and understood, but not to sort of the industrialized, commercialized Western world whose focus was not on bringing forth healthy children, but uh, getting work done, industrializing the world, and they weren't looking at these things. And we have so many new practices in our lives now, so many new things. Literally, cell phones didn't exist when I was a kid. Yeah. Literally, the internet yeah. did not exist when I was a kid. We have so many new factors. It's very difficult for us now. We're, we're seeing all these problems crop up. It's hard to know what it might be. What could it be? I mean, there's yeah. so many variables. For the indigenous people, there were very few variables or very well-established variables. So they, they knew these practices. Interesting. Okay. So, okay. Let's talk about, you're talking about, like, the, the, the question of whether humanity is still going to be able to exist. So what's going on with that most basic function for our survival, and that's fertility? What's going on with it, in your opinion? Where is it going to? Because it's, it's huge. It's at its peak right now, infertility. And how do we get it back? Well, yeah, as you mentioned, infertility is now at its all-time high that we've ever seen it as a society. Um, and also sperm counts are at an all-time low. So sometimes it's the woman who's very infertile. Sometimes it's the husband who's very infertile. Sometimes they both have fertility issues. Mm -hmm. Of course, fertility uh, medicines are being used more than ever. Um, there's a lot of factors. Let's look at a few of them. One factor that I've really brought to the foreground in our community is the idea of xenoestrogen. And, you know, the body works on several gonadal hormones. For men, a very important um, uh, uh, hormone would be testosterone and it's associated androgens, right? But when we say testosterone, we mean one thing, testosterone. When we say estrogen, it tends to refer to a class of hormones that include other things besides estrogen, like estradiol, for instance. Um, for men, testosterone is very important. For women, progesterone is very important. It's almost like your testosterone equivalent. And both of us are very affected by estrogens. Now, there's meant to be a, a balance in the body between testosterone and estrogen or progesterone and estrogen. And, of course, both women have testosterone and men have mm -hmm. progesterone. But they're meant to exist in balance, and they're antagonized by estrogen. If we start increasing the amount of estrogen in our body, a whole lot of problems start to occur from infertility issues to cancers in the uh, breast or ovary or fallopian tube or uterus to maybe fibroid tumors on the cervix to um, problems with the testicles in men, problems with the prostate in men. What we're seeing is that so many of the new substances that have recently come into our lives as a species, if I say plastic's new in your life, you might say, no, it's been there since I was a kid, but it wasn't there a couple generations ago. For our species, it's new. The thing is, is that when we touch things that are synthetic, they move through the oils in our skin. Plastic's actually very oil-soluble. It dissolves well in oil. Mm -hmm. So our skin is a bit oily, and when we're touching things made out of plastic, especially, say, new soft plastics, which have substances on them called phthalates, say a new bit of cellophane, for instance, will have phthalates on it. Or how about um, harder plastics that have things like BPA, like the new Barbie doll that your, your daughter gets and she chews on the head, <laughs> right? And the BPA, the bisphenol A, that's a plastic... Um, um, hardness modulator extracts out into her body and the body sees it and thinks that it's estrogen and it begins to bind itself to the estrogen receptor sites but it's not just the Barbie doll she chews on it's not just the plastic pen we chew on it's all the plastic that we joked around this weekend I said take a look at your plastic steering wheel in your car notice that there's a spot worn away 
Where'd the spot go? Is there a little pile of steering wheel flakes on the floor? No, where is it? Well, it's moved into your body. The plastics that package our foods, and our foods absorb those plastics. And those things just keep getting into our body. And then they store up in our body fat. They seem to be like estrogen. We call them xeno from the outside. Xenoestrogens. Those things are leading to a lot of infertility. Also, plant-based estrogens, phytoestrogens. Of course, we're starting to understand now that soy is not actually a very good food for most people. And if it's going to be eaten, needs to have its isoflavins destroyed through the fermentation process. Otherwise, the body sees them as a phyto, in other words, plant, a phytoestrogen. And where the same kind of issues occur. Soy, of course, was used as a sexual depressant in monastic cultures. Mm. That would be great if you were a, a man living alone in a monastery, meditating all day. Well, you don't want a really fired up libido in that case. So soy would be a good food. But when we feed that to the masses, we dampen and depress this, the ability to produce the gonadal hormones that make us fertile. This is true of flax, I assume it's true of hemp, and probably true of a lot of seeds. Hemp? I, my suspicion, yes. And I would say that um, many, uh, you know, interestingly, it's a bad idea to take a food and, um, or take a substance that has no history as a food and make it a food for the masses without looking into how it was used in the past. Right. And when we look in the past, flax is a great example. Flax is very high in lignans, which are phytoestrogens. Yeah. And if you consume flax regularly and daily, it acts in the body like estrogen. Right? Right. Now, you might think, well, but flax has been around a long time, and it has. In fact, linen is the fiber of flax. But if we look at the history of flax, we see it was not used as a food. It was used to make oil and paint and glue, and it was used to make fiber, but it wasn't really eaten, not long term. We see the same thing with hemp. And of course, hemp was made into ropes and fabrics and oils and even smoked, but wasn't really consumed as a food. That's a new idea. And when we do these things, again, we, it's wise to look back. How did the people who were reproducing healthfully use this food, right. if at all? So a lot of the foods that are in our diet today actually are doing the same thing. This is causing a lot of the premenstrual problems that women are having. It's causing a lot of the premenopausal and perimenopausal and postmenopausal problems that we see. So all this estrogen. That's one part. Mm -hmm. I think what we are going to find out, in the same way just the other day, if you, um, today is what, the, the 7th, maybe 8th of May, 2011, um, just last week, the WHO finally reported, oh, turns out cell phones cause brain tumors. Mm. Now, a lot of us have been saying this for a long time. <laughs> I mean, this is a no-brainer, mm -hmm. so to speak. Um, I think that it was obvious that we were going to find that out. And of course, the idea for those companies was let's suppress it, suppress it, suppress it until the world completely buys into the technology, then let it surface and know who's going to stop at that point, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, we are going to find out that genetically modified food affects fertility. We know it from animal studies. I think it's important to know that there was, um, I think in 2001, the creation of a genetically modified corn that was designed to create sterility in men. Let me say it again. This, this corn variety, uh, a gene from certain women with a rare condition called immunoinfertility. And what that means is that their immune systems produce an antibody that attacks sperm, so the women can't get pregnant because they destroy any sperm that come into their body with these antibodies. Mm -hmm. So a company called Epicyte figured out how to insert that gene into corn, and then when men eat that corn, their sperm are attacked by the antibody. 
So is that corn now out there? You is know, it? I wish we knew. <laughs> but the thing is, is that genetically modified foods require no labeling and no testing. Yeah. And so we don't know where that corn is. Yeah. But we know that since the introduction of genetically modified ingredients into our diet, for those who are wondering what those foods might be, there's the big four, I like to say. That's the corn, canola, soybean, and cottonseed. And those are the four crops that make up vegetable oil, which is in just about any processed food or restaurant food or in a lot of people's kitchens. Uh, those foods, their long-term implications are not well understood. And again, even if we did population studies, it's difficult to separate that variable from all the other things people are doing that are new, like using cell phones, like being exposed to xenoestrogens, like taking pharmaceuticals. Hard to say, oh, that's what this does. Uh, it's already out in the population. Now, whether that corn variety is out or not, we don't know. But we do see that um, illegal and unreported sterilizations have been happening through vaccinations in places like Africa. And we can see uh, from his own lips people like Bill Gates telling us that through the use of vaccines we can reduce the population. So we see that in addition to some of the things that we're doing, it appears that there's also political agendas that are advancing the ideas of infertility. We see that Planned Parenthood, as an example, is an organization who comes out of the eugenics movement, which was mass sterilizing people. We see that Canada, along with the United States, uh, were sterilizing people in the early 1900s against their will or without informing them. And this has been going on a long time. So there's, um, there's a couple of factors. One is our own lifestyle, and one are the bodies that govern us as the masses, sterilizing us as well in an effort to reduce population, which is, of course, something we all need to do, but uh, perhaps we would like to have a voice in it. So there's a lot of factors coming together right now, and my point would be this, and you saw in my slideshow over the weekend, I put up a slide that said um, you need to, to intentionally develop your fecundity. Fecundity means your, your ability to vigorously reproduce. This is not guaranteed anymore. No. It's for the first time, no, it's, it's not, not. guaranteed. Mm -hmm. um, you actually, if you want to be able to reproduce or at least stay in the vigorous state of a person capable of reproduction, now is the time to develop yourself consciously, nutritionally, to feed yourself, to exercise yourself in the ways that keep your body fertile. Because, um, and interestingly, I want to point one last thing out. When, what we see in, it's not just that men's sperm counts are going lower. It's that male testosterone is going lower. And we really do see now that men today are scarcely resembling the masculinity of the past. I don't mean this sort of machismo, Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of masculinity that was big in the 80s during the steroid days. I mean the, the maleness uh, that I think many women actually really want to see in their men is actually um, almost being bred out of us at this point. And that's why we're seeing all this stuff about women now have taken over the job market, women have taken over the workforce, women have taken over a lot of businesses, more and more women now CEOs. Now, I think that's fantastic for the women who want to do that, but I think that's unfortunate for women who would like to raise children. And that's yeah. what's in the heart of so many yeah. women, and that opportunity is passing them by because the men can't do it or can't support it anymore. And so the woman's asked if she does have a child, hey, can you be back to work in two weeks? Yeah. And this is an unfortunate situation. And that in itself has a whole host of repercussions. Yeah, as well. it, it does open up another yes, can of worms. Yes, it does. Oh my goodness. Okay, so what do we? You talk a lot about genes and our genetic potential and the way that we express our genes. So what what do we need to do to birth a new generation who is truly expressing 
at least more of their genetic potential. I don't know if it's all of their genetic potential. I'm not sure what where that lies, but what do we need to do to create that, to see that? Well, backstory would be that we all share a genome. There's very little variation in our DNA. What there's a lot of variation in is what's now called the epigenetics. So you have your DNA, that double helix, and then epi means above or on top of. So we have above the genetics, we have these um, markers that cause genes to be expressed and or not expressed. Little switches that turn genes on or off. We now know, and I think you introduced, uh, I mean you uh, interviewed Bruce Lipton, yes. who's um, brought a lot of that epigenetics information to the mm -hmm. foreground. Um, and outside of Bruce's work, we can find countless now studies being done by universities around the world that uh, are focused on epigenetics. What's so powerful about epigenetics is the first time we've, science has accepted, for the, again, it's like the cell phone issue. For most of us, this is obvious. Science is now accepting that everything in your environment affects your epigenetics, causes these switches to be turned on or off. This uh, means food affects your epigenetics quality of your air, uh, quality of the stresses around you or lack of them, um, your work environment, all of these things, your beliefs, everything you do is switching genes on or off. For those who are living in a world where everything is pain, everything is trauma, everything is stress, the food is low quality, the air is low quality, it's causing genes to be turned off and other genes to be turned on. The ones that get turned off are what? Well, they're those ones that cause our teeth to grow improperly. They're the ones that mm -hmm. cause us to be fertile. Mm -hmm. The ones that are being turned on are the ones that lead to cancers, that lead to heart diseases, that lead, if you understand what I mean. Mm -hmm. We are actually, epigenetics for the first time, it's like, wait a sec, you're in control. You're in control of how your genes are being expressed. The caveat to that is epigenetics really start showing up one to two or even three generations down the road. So when we went on to the white bread and aspirin diet, <laughs> no, when we, when we went to fully refined foods yeah. that were chemically fertilized and pharmaceuticals as a diet, um, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's amazing that this has happened, but you, we were able to get away with it for a generation. Yes. Or two. Why? Because grandma and great-grandma from the old world were fed the foods grown in the traditional soils in the traditional way with the traditional fermentation methods and the traditional fertilization methods and the traditional uh, hunting or farming methods. All of that stuff that, just like we said with the pre-industrial peoples, had worked over mm -hmm. and over. All this stuff had worked. When they changed it, the first generation was still living off the dowry of good epigenetics that had been mm. passed to them. But they spent that out. They spent that bank account so that by the time our parents' generation was there, stuff was starting to crop up. We started seeing cancer go from one in 8,000 to one in four, to one in three, to this generation where it's one in two with the children born today. Uh, all this stuff started to emerge and it's speeding up now. And that's why so many people are dying of degenerative disease. Hear it. That's the opposite of evolution. De-gene-eration. Your genes breaking down. How is it happening? It's happening through that epigenetic process. So this means if you, you, know, you move into a new house and the carpets and the countertops are outgassing formaldehyde mm -hmm. and you're breathing that in, that's not good for you. But it's going to affect not just you, 
but one to two generations back. So what we really need to focus on is not just ourselves, and that's what I appreciate about what you're doing, is this is not narcissism. I want to be the healthiest, sexiest, you know, person. It's, yeah, that's byproduct. That's yeah. a byproduct of yeah. wanting to live in a way that um, supports the future generations, and we get that in return. What we do today, it's not just how healthy can I be, it's how can I make sure that I'm a steward of the genetics that were passed to me. And they were passed to me, it's sort of like a family heirloom, right? Like say the good, the good silver passed on mm -hmm. from grandmother mm -hmm. to grand to daughter or you or to mother to daughter. And when it gets to you, it gets to you tarnished and beat yeah. up a little bit. And it's on you to either pass it on even worse or clean it up a little bit. Your genes were passed on to you. The whole world's gone through this bottleneck of, of factors that damage us. And it's on us as stewards of our genome to do what we can to get things restored and, and pass them on more intact. And I really feel every single thing we do in our lives, literally every single thing, that's a lot yeah. of pressure. It is a lot of pressure. pressure. But everything yeah. you do is developing children who are better at doing it. Right. And um, really, what's happening is we're evolving our species right out of natural ecosystems into some kind of artificial, um, some kind of space age, some kind of starship enterprise kind of reality <laughs> that lacks the soil, the earth, that lacks the, the water, that lacks the air, and lacks the sunlight of a true ecosystem so to be replaced. So none of the elements that, so elements that we've been talking yeah. about. Yeah, replaced by, by plastic and linoleum and steel and and drywall replaced by um, water that contains you know, chlorine and fluoride and pharmaceuticals and air that's been cooked and moved through conditioners and light that comes from light bulbs. This is where our, this is our children's ecosystem if we don't make some changes now. Right, right, that's okay. So, changes. <laughs> what changes could we make? So three, let's just pick three because I know there are a host of you. look at, like you said, every aspect of your life, you could change every one of them for the better, I'm sure, the average person. So, and including me, I got lots of changes I can make too and everybody. So what, what are three major changes that would be the most impactful for ourselves but really for the, the next generation so that they grow up also maybe not having to change those things and they also get the benefit of whatever improvement it can do to their genetics ahead of time. You're asking me the hardest question. <laughs> so let me pick three. And because throughout your course I know that um, I'll leave out one that I think would be really important, which is this assessing our birth. And so I'm talking about it anyway. But yeah, assessing okay. our birth yeah. trauma yeah. and dealing with these things. Let's assume that we've, we're doing that. Okay. Three things that you can do right now. Um, you can really begin to examine the foods that you put in your mouth. And you can go on this really fun journey that takes you from wherever you're at towards better food. Even if you think you're at the best food, I can tell you there's further you can go. Because the best food in the world is actually wild foods. That's what we're genetically adapted to. We've only been farming for 10,000 years. Mm -hmm. And most of us have only been farming a couple thousand, domesticating species, changing them. Prior to that, for 200,000 years of evolution, everything we ate came from wild ecosystems. That's the best food. That's why that food's available when you go to the highest-end restaurants. That's why they send foragers out to bring fiddleheads and morels back, because black trumpets and things like that. That's the best food. That's the most nutritious food. Now, a lot of us, that's a long ways out. And that's maybe not accessible for us. Right? And maybe we're on the full you know, Dorito chip diet now. So what do we do? We move towards organic food. 
If we're getting that and we lock that in and we get our diet to a place where we're eating primarily organically raised food, there's another level. Because organic doesn't mean as much as it used to. Yeah. And it might mean all your food shipped in from somewhere far away from where you live. Um, and it's also very expensive. So where we go from there? We move from that organic food over to our local food. We start to connect with our local farmers at our farmers markets or through co-ops or through CSA's consumer supported agriculture programs. And we find local producers of foods and we get local, organic, and now we add in this piece, heirloom, genetics yeah. of the food we eat. If we lock that in, maybe we want to move towards growing some of our own food or rearing some of our own animals. I think even beyond that would be getting into your own hunting and fishing and wild foraging and combining that with some horticulture, some gardening, until you've got a diet where not only are you in control of what the soil environment's like or what the, what the uh, things that you're growing are eating, whether animal or plant, but actually what genetic strains are you eating? Because there's this interesting question that I think I like to pose to people of, do the genetics of what you eat matter as much as vitamins, minerals, carbohydrates? Do genetics matter? Most people don't think so until you offer them genetically modified food, right. which they don't want to eat because of its DNA. Well, if DNA matters in food, I think the heirloom varieties and the wild varieties are so much better than these commercially developed varieties. So first thing you can do, wherever you're at, know that there's this spectrum from the worst food possible to the best food possible and always be just making movements towards that and when you get confused about what to do when new information comes oh don't eat this it's bad for you and then you hear somebody else say no no it's good for you and you're weighing it back and forth what should i choose should i be a vegetarian should i eat animal foods should i you know do carbohydrates or fats whenever you get confused look at the diets of indigenous people and traditional cultures and model off of it that's the last time and space and place where we knew what worked. New stuff, not going to work. If you want to know more about that, I'd look at the Weston Price Foundation. Take a look at the book, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. It'll give you a nice broad picture of what natural diets look like. Second thing you can do, change the water you're drinking. I think this is so important. I joke with people a lot about how we're a 70% we're a say water-based organism. We're like a fish tank. And our cells are like the fish. And if you think about a fish tank, if anyone's ever had one, you know, what's more important, the quality of the fish flake or the quality of the water? Mm. It's pretty obvious to most of us, you could have the highest end, the very best fish flake available, fully organic, right? Freeze-dried, perfect, the best stuff. And if you've got crappy water, the fish will be sick. If you had the best water imaginable, we go to Siberia to Lake Bacal and we take that amazing spring-fed lake water, we rear the fish in there, we could probably get away with a lower quality fish flake and the fish would stay healthy. That's just, mm. in, that's obvious, it's intuitive. Mm -hmm. Water is a lot more important, quality of water, I think, than even food. Now I've created a website, findaspring.com, and that's a website people can go to to locate springs where they live. And you can actually drive your car up to the spring and get out with your bottle and get clean, fresh water from the earth and bring it home and drink it. If you got a five-gallon bottle of water, I mean, let's say you're about, say, five gallons. You drink <laughs> that whole bottle and change out all the old water in your body for clean water, you actually get to build your body, 70% of it, out of the cleanest water in the world. And the reason I love spring water is because it comes from aquifers that are deep underground and they haven't been contaminated by pollution and industry because the water's been under there since before any of that began. 
sometimes thousands and thousands of years. Now, if you don't have access to a spring or that feels like, whoa, that's a little far out, I'm not going there yet. Um, you could go to visit a friend who has an artesian well, or maybe you have an artesian well, where you can get water from underground. Um, that's critical. Real water from ecosystems, I think, is important. Um, if you don't have access to that and you're drinking tap liquid currently, muni water, <laughs> um, now's the time to invest in high-quality filtration system and learn how to condition that water so that after it comes out of the filter, you restore it a bit because filters do damage water. We know it. The World Health Organization tells us that filtered waters from reverse osmosis, distillation, desalination, and deionization all create waters that are very demineralizing to the body. We know that mm -hmm. now. So if you are using that kind of water, maybe a little pinch of salt to a five-gallon bottle, shake that up, let some minerals get back in there, let some activity happen to the hydrogen bond matrix of the water. Water quality matters. Just like with wild food, we said you've got your sort of um, your Doritos on this end, you've got your wild food on this end, move in this direction, however long that takes you, comfortably at a sustainable pace, this is your muni water laden with pee and toilet paper and tampons. That's true. Those are the major contaminants in city water um, because people's toilet water is recycled as drinking water. Uh, pharmaceuticals that were in that person's body show up in their birth control, another vector by which we're seeing effects on our reproduction. Um, all these things, countless um, contaminants, fluoride, chlorine, all of this stuff, if that's what's in your diet, in your water, and you've got spring water on this end, start the movement, the progression towards clean water. Right. The last thing I want to say is get off of science diet. Genetically modified food, pesticide sprayed food, uh, synthetically fertilized food. Get off of pharmaceuticals. These artificially uh, synthesized and or extracted plant molecules that have been taken out of their whole matrix. Most of the pharmaceuticals are originally derived from plants, but everything else that was in there with that molecule has been taken away till we're left with a, a pure white powder. These things have serious side effects. We don't know the long-term effects of taking them. Your doctor doesn't know the effects of the pharmaceuticals he issues you. He can't. He doesn't know, and he doesn't know how they'll interact with everything else you're doing. This is why so many people are sick from their pharmaceuticals. This is why doctors are killing more people than nearly anything else. Um, get off of pharmaceuticals, get off of injections, get off of vaccines, get off all this stuff. Learn to use food and vitalism and herbalism and or other alternative methods and modes to correct things in your body know that your doctor doesn't know how to cure anything. They've never cured anything. They've never cured any disease. There's no disease they've cured. They haven't cured colds or flus. They haven't cured all those things with vaccines they claim to. We now know that most of those diseases are not in our culture now because of sanitary toilet conditions. It's not vaccines. They haven't cured anything. All they do is drug people, cut people, burn people, and irradiate people. Those are their four methods, and they don't work, and they lead to more problems. So shun your doctor, get on good quality food and good quality water, and you'll be amazed at the changes that happen in your body over time.